Good morning and welcome to Grace Church. I'd like to add my welcome to that of our brother who's already welcomed each of you. And uh, as our brother Moran said, we welcome our brothers and sisters in the name of our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. I had not misgivings, but I had some questions on what to teach this morning and whether or not I had the leadership of God in it, but with the song service we had, gave confirmation that indeed we're all of one mind here. And uh, I think that that is the victory that we have in Christ and the assurance of that salvation. I'd like for us this morning, if you would stand together with me, we'll read a few verses of scripture here in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. It's a passage that's not a stranger to us, but we will consider what Paul had to say to the believers here in the book of Romans. And we'll begin reading at verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? Now, we didn't read about the things that he's talking about, but the previous verses talk about uh, what some have called the golden chain, about how God has called his people justified his people, sanctified his people, and glorified his people. And each of those is spoken of in the past tense to show us the certainty that those things will come to pass. So he asked the question, what shall we then say to these things if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? He says in verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death, life, angels, principalities, nor powers, things present or things to come, not height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let the Lord's people say praise the Lord, and you may be seated. I have called this little section that we read today, beginning in verse 31, this is a, a question and answer session with the Apostle Paul. 
He gives a series of questions and answers. And I think as we mentioned, having established with unquestionable certainty the full salvation that has been accomplished by Christ on behalf of his people. Paul now raises uh, a series of questions that when rightly answered as he answers them, only add to the assurance of the believer that their salvation has been accomplished and that it is accepted with God the Father. Now I'd like for us to look at in particular verse 34. Paul raises a question as he did in each of these verses, but here he asks the question, who is he that condemneth? That is a word, I guess, that strikes fear in all of our hearts when we think of condemnation. But in response to this question, we find four pillars upon which we can rest and trust that we are indeed safe in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess that would be the topic or the name for this particular message, the four pillars of our assurance of salvation. What are those four things? First, Christ has died. The second, Christ is risen again from the dead. And if you'll note, he gives a word of description or an adjective here described. He says, Christ died, but then he says, yea, rather. And that little word that's translated rather means more. More. The fact that Christ died for us should be enough, but there's more than that. He also was raised from the dead. And it tells us that Christ is at the right hand of God. And if you go back to chapter 5 and verse 10, you'll find that when the apostle speaks there of God, of Christ sitting at the right hand of God, he says, how much more is he able to say? Much more. You have the fact that Christ died. Then you have more than that. You have that he has resurrected from the dead. Then you have much more than that. He has sat down at the right hand of God and then he tells us that Christ makes intercession for us and the writer of Hebrews says that he is able to save unto the uttermost those who come unto Christ because he makes intercession for them. So there is a progression here. It should be enough for us that Christ died. Paul says if that's not enough, we have his resurrection. He said if that's not enough, we have the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God. And if that's not enough, we have the knowledge that Christ spends his time at the right hand praying for his people, interceding for us. Why was that individual we sang about, why was he able, that weary pilgrim, able to accomplish his journey and cross over the river into home? Because God is faithful. 
because Christ was interceding for him. The one who died for him, the one who has risen again. Now we find that first of all, let's consider the question, and as we do, let's remember this scripture, this verse, just like all the others, is under the divine inspiration of God. God inspired Paul to ask this question. Who is he that condemneth? Who is he that would take that crown from us that we just sang about? The principalities. Well, there's an answer that we can look at in that. Who is he that condemneth? There's no short list. When you think about it, who is it that would condemn us? Our own conscience would condemn us. We know, we don't know our heart as God knows us, but we know that we are a sinful people. We know that we have, if we got our just desserts, that we have done those things that are so displeasing. We have transgressed against God. We have forsaken the one who created us, and we are worthy to be punished for that. But God has given us a conscience, a little still, small voice speaks in your ear saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Yeah, that's the voice of the Spirit of God, and oftentimes he speaks to us, and he would remind us that the things that we have done sometimes are displeasing to God, and he smites our heart. For example, in the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 24, David, who was God's anointed to be king of Israel, was fleeing, being pursued by Saul, who was the then king of Israel that the people had requested. And as Saul pursued David, he grew weary and went into a cave to, to rest a while. And as providence would have it, it was the same cave that David and his men were hiding in. So that while Saul was asleep, David went and cut off a piece of the hem of his garment, his robe, to show him that the Lord had delivered him into his hand, had he so chosen. But you know what happened? David was of such a sensitive nature, it says that his heart smote him because he had dishonored his king. The king that was pursuing him to kill him, and yet his conscience told him what he did was a wrong thing. We have our own conscience that would smite us and condemn us. No matter, no matter where we try to run from ourselves, you know, you have... Through the ages, the, the monks and the priests have sought solitude in their uh, monasteries to seek seclusion, that they might be separate from the world. But they never separated themselves from sin. You know why? They were there. They couldn't separate themselves from the sinfulness of their own heart because they were there. They were still, and yet in their sins, we can't escape Ourself. Everywhere we seek to find hiding, to find shelter outside of Christ, we're there. 
and the conscience continues to smite and to condemn. But he who is greater than we are has delivered us from that. We have another that would condemn us, the world. This world in which we live, those who once called themselves friend, once the Lord has dealt with your life, has converted you, has given you a new life, made you a new creation, those same friends turn on you and begin to mock you and would ridicule your new faith. They say, we know what kind of guy you are. You're a rascal. You're no saint. God wouldn't have anything to do with you. But we need to remember that if the world hates us, it hated our Lord first. You'll find that in John chapter, or 1 John chapter 15, or John 15 verse 18. We have another that would condemn us. That's our old adversary, Satan, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, the one who goes to and fro in the earth seeking whom he may devour, whom he may uh, deceive. If you would open your Bibles over to turn back in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Zechariah. Being one of the minor prophets, I probably should have given you warning on that. Sometimes it's hard to navigate the minor prophets. But in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 3, you have a very interesting event related to us. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Zechariah, he showed me Joshua the high priest. He was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuked thee, Satan. Even the Lord who hath chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke unto those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Is that not what our Lord has done for us? As we are called to stand before him in and of ourselves, we stand in filthy garments. But our Lord in his grace has told his ministers, his angels, the spirit, take away those filthy garments and give him this clean garment of my righteousness. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Do you recall the story of Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau? Esau actually was the eldest. Esau was an outdoorsman. He was the firstborn, was to receive the firstborn blessing. But instead, Jacob, in order to be accepted with his father and to receive his blessing, guess what he did? He put on his brother's garment. Why? 
so that when he appeared before his father, his father would receive the smell, the odor that he loved. We're clothed in the garment of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his righteousness, so that we come in to stand before the thrice holy God. We are of a sweet-smelling savor. He doesn't see us as we are in and of ourselves, but he receives us as he does Christ. We find that Satan has been dealt a death blow. It's just taking a long time to come to pass. But besides that, Satan, the devil, has never been more than a servant of God. You remember in the book of Job, two different occasions. In Job chapter 1 and verse 8, talks about how Satan came before the Lord, and the Lord asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And then again in chapter 2 and verse 3, Satan appears with the angels before the Lord, and again the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And the reason I mention that is I don't know how often you think about it, but it should be a source of joy and encouragement to us to know that if the Father delights in the Son, and he said that he does, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, if we are in the Son, guess what? Then the Father is well pleased with us. Not because of us, but because of Christ. I think I wouldn't reduce God to feeling the emotion we call pride, but I think he was pleased with his servant Job, and he was kind of showing him off, bragging about it. Look, let's look there a minute. Turn, in, turn over to the book of Job. If you can find the book of Psalms, you can find the book of Job. very first chapter. I told you it was right near Psalms, so I turned to the Psalms. It's not Psalm, it's Job. In chapter 1, notice this. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along with them. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered and said, Well, from going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Well, let me ask you, brethren and sisters, do you know any individual born of Adam's race, that this would fit? That could be described as one who is perfect and upright? No. Even at this time, God looked upon Job and saw him in the person of Christ. He was accepted in Christ, and he was, God was boasting, he was bragging on his son. 
and he limited what Satan could do. He said, okay, he said, oh, you know, you can touch the things that he has, you can take all that from him, but you can't touch Job. And then the second time he said, all right, he said, if you want, if you want to continue this discussion, he said, you can touch Job, but you can't take his life. Who is the sovereign here? It's not the devil. There's not a, a battle of good and evil of Satan against God. God is in control of all things. And so when he asked, who is he that condemneth, even though Satan would love to accuse us and bring accusation against us, he cannot condemn us. We have also the fact of the law of God. The law of God does nothing more than show man his sinfulness before God. It condemns us. The law says this do and live, and it tells us that we cannot do it. Therefore, we do not earn life, but rather death. It was given to show us the holiness of God. If you're back in Romans, where our text is, turn back just one chapter. Romans chapter 7. This is where the Apostle Paul is showing us something of his own nature, of his own feelings. But in chapter 7, verse 18, he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Conflict. Conflict in our nature. Our own sinfulness would condemn us. The law says, and we sing this hymn sometimes, I think Brother Gary Long, when he was here, it was one of his favorite. It was a, like a theme song for the seminary they had. That the law says we must die. But grace and mercy said, no, he'll live. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, we read these two words that change everything for the sinner. But God. But God. We were dead in trespasses and sin. We walked according to the prince and the power of this air for a long time. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. Who is he that condemneth? We're not going to be condemned by ourselves. We're not going to be condemned by the world. We're not going to be condemned by Satan. Not even the law of a holy God can condemn us. Did you notice how this chapter starts? Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. When does that happen? Do we have to wait for the second coming of Christ to receive the truth that there is no condemnation? No. He says now, right now, if you're in Christ, you are not condemned and there is none to condemn you. And why is that? Why is that, Paul? You ask the question, who is he that condemneth? The answer is none. And why is that? Well, that's because we overcome the fear of condemnation by knowing and believing Christ died for me. Christ was buried for me. Christ arose for me. Christ intercedes. He ever liveth to make intercession for me. It becomes personal. It's a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ came in the world to die for sinners. That's a precious truth. But until that precious truth becomes personal and you can say Christ came into the world to die for me, then it really becomes special. You understand what he is saying. Why is it that none can condemn us? Because Christ has died. He is our substitute. All of the Old Testament through the uh, sacrifices that were made through the mosaic form of religion, each and every time an animal was slain, it was pointing to Christ saying, Messiah, is to be slain. You need a substitute. You need someone who is innocent to shed their blood for you. We find that, well, even in the passage we read this morning during the Lord's Supper, Isaiah 53, we find that indeed Christ is our substitute. That our sin, the iniquity, that we are guilty of was laid upon him, was charged to his account. And he drank that cup to the last dregs, leaving nothing, nothing for us to do. That's the reason he cried out on the cross, it is finished. The work of redemption, the price that is to be paid and is required for our redemption has been paid. He bore the penalty of our sins. This is another passage that's not unfamiliar to you. You probably can even quote it. But you'll turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 19, he says, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. That's the message of the gospel. It's how we might be reconciled to God. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We beg you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. The whole purpose and our considering this passage today and me standing here is I would beseech you in the stead of Christ, be reconciled to God. Seek him while he may be found. 
Do not go out in eternity not knowing the only one who can give you life. Why? Because he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's that imputation that we hear so much about, isn't it? Our sins being imputed or reckoned to the account of Christ and his righteousness being imputed or reckoned to our account. Him bearing the penalty, suffering the agony that was ours to be born so that we would not have to suffer. And working out a righteousness which he did not need that he could imply it or reckon it to our account because we needed that righteousness, and could not supply it. Observe, observe who died. When Paul says this, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. It's the very Son of God, the just for the unjust, suffering in our place. The substitute, the sacrifice that was accepted of God had to be God to give efficacy to his death. And at the same time, he had to be man that he might die. God is spirit. God cannot die. But as man, as he became the God-man, as he was incarnate and robed himself in flesh, that he might die. And so we have a substitute who offered himself. And when you consider that the one who offered himself, and he did offer himself, his life was not taken from him. He made that very clear during the time of his crucifixion. He said, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down of myself. He willingly lay down his life. And if the one who offered himself in the stead of his people, in my stead, in your stead, if you're his child, if he is infinite, if he is omnipotent, then can we question the sufficiency of that sacrifice? I think not. If God incarnate died in my place, then my sins have been cleansed. Observe who died. He calls him here the Christ. Who is the Christ? Who is Messiah? Those words, one is Hebrew, Messiah. The other Greek, Christos, Christ. They both mean anointed. This is the anointed of God. Who did anoint Christ for this work? It was the Father. It was the Father's, it was at the Father's bidding that Christ came. Find that over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 6 through 10, how that he came to do the Father's will, that it was his delight to do the Father's will. It was in the Father's power that he came. And you can find that here in the book of Romans earlier, chapter, chapter 3, and verse 25, after he tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, he 
tells us what he has done about it. It was with the Father's anointing that Christ became a suffering substitute. He was sealed for that ministry at his baptism. You can find that in Matthew, Mark, and John. They all speak of the baptism of Christ. And at his baptism, it says that they behold the Spirit of God descending as a dove that did light upon his shoulder. And that was the sealing of the Lord Jesus Christ for the mission and the ministry of saving his people. That's why he was named. That's why he came into this world. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Observe what he tells us here. Who is he that condemns? There is none to condemn us. Why? Because that Christ died. He didn't just swoon or faint. He died. He was buried. And he died to make an end of sin. Having paid all the demands of the law and justice of God, he made an end of that law so that we stand redeemed in Christ and he can present us, his bride, as a chaste, and holy bride without spot and without blemish. That's how we're seen in Christ. Not only did he die, but rather Christ is risen again. You can read over in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of, of the importance of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As great an act as a death of Christ is, the apostle tells us that his resurrection is even a greater comfort. Because in his resurrection, we have the confidence of realizing and knowing that the Father accepted the offering of the Son. When you have a debt and it's something that you've been paying on for some time. And another individual comes up and lets you know, said, I have paid off your debt. That's great news. But you know what makes that news even better? It's when that company sends you a receipt saying, paid in full. Well, that's what the resurrection is. Christ is saying, my death paid your debt. And the resurrection says it's marked paid in full. Because he died and resurrected. We have the hope of being resurrected with him. His death was sufficient payment. And his resurrection says it's paid in full. The father is satisfied with the, the sufferings of his son. His resurrection indicates our acceptance with God as he was our substitute in death. So is he our representative in the resurrection. You see, with him we were crucified. We died with him. With him we were buried. When he went in the tomb and buried, so were we. With him we rise again to newness of life in his resurrection 
and in his acceptance, we are accepted. Turn over a few pages to the book of Colossians. I had planned to read more of these passages that I am pointing out to you, but time is quickly passing. But I do want you to look at Colossians chapter 1. Notice in verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether things in the earth or things in heaven. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. Conscience would condemn you. Let your conscience be reconciled to the truth. Christ died for you. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 11, well, let's begin at verse 10. And ye are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. You, verse 13, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and it was taken out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You see how completely he has given us redemption and salvation? He has quickened us and has forgiven us. That is a blessed thought. Ponder on that sometimes. Sit down and meditate upon what that means to be forgiven. Not just of some of our sins, but all of our sins. We are forgiven that guilt that you carry around because of things that were done years ago, let it go. If God has forgiven you for Christ's sake, forgive yourself for Christ's sake. Let it go. We are forgiven. He has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances against us. The law that condemned us, it's been blotted out. It's been satisfied by Christ. Christ came into the world the first time, he said, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he did. And in fulfilling it, he made an end of it so that it has no claim over any of his people. He nailed it to his cross, suffered to the nth degree. We know that there is none that can condemn us because it is Christ himself that died Yea, rather, that is risen again, much more, who is even at the right hand of God. You consider that? Where is that place? What is the meaning? What's the significance? Why does it say he sat down at the right hand of God? Because that's a place of love. 
The right hand speaks of love to another. It's a reserve for one that is dear to God. His son and those that are in his son. The right hand of God, that's a place of honor. Do you know none of the angels were ever offered to sit at the right hand of God? Read over in the book of Hebrews. None of them. It's a place of power. The right hand is always associated with power. So we ask, who indeed can be against us if God is for us? Because we are, if we are in Christ, we are where he is. He has gone to prepare a place for us, and he's coming again that we might be with him bodily. But if we are in Christ as part of his body, then we are where he is, and where is he? Well, turn over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, you know this passage. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. How can we receive those blessings if we're not in the heavenly places? If he's blessed us in the heavenly places, that's where we are. Look at verse 19 and 20 of the same chapter. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places? So if we're blessed in the heavenly places, if that's where we are, and here he tells us that heavenly place is at the right hand of God, guess what? In Christ, we are seated the right hand of God. Who's going to condemn us? Who's going to accuse us? Who is it that is going to successfully keep us from receiving the salvation that has been planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, and applied by his spirit. None. If God has said it, he will bring it to pass. He will do whatsoever is pleasing unto him. Christ intercedes for us. Read John chapter 17. That whole prayer is an intercessory prayer of Christ for his church. He tells us in verse 9, he said, listen, I'm praying for them, not for the world, but I pray for these whom thou hast given me, those who have believed. I pray for them, and I don't pray that you take them out of the world. But what does he pray? I pray that you keep them. If God is going to keep us, guess what? We're going to be kept. If he has us in his hand, what, how does it put it? If we're in the hand of Christ, and the hand of Christ is in the hand of God, how shall any pluck us out of his hand? We can't jump out ourselves. Satan can't get us out. The law is not going to take us out. We are accepted in the beloved. 
final word, though. Turn back in your Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 3. A very bittersweet passage. You all know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But John didn't say amen and put down his pen. He kept writing. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Oh, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Who shall condemn us? He sent his Son not sent his son to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. When the scriptures tell us that no man can come unto the Father or to the Son except the Father drawn, the reason we cannot come is because we will not to come. That's our will by nature. We will not to come. We will, as Adam did, to run from God. And he tells us by nature, if we fight against this thing that God has done, this new work called salvation, if we reject and refuse his son, we're already condemned. It's not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. We don't want to be there. We want to When someone asks you the question, who is he that condemns, we want to be able to say, none. None can condemn me because Christ died for me, because Christ was resurrected for me, because Christ sits at the right hand of the Father for me, because Christ intercedes for me. None can condemn me. I have life in Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful today that we can join with the Apostle Paul. And when we consider the question, who is he that condemns us? We can, with joy in our hearts, say that there is none that can condemn. Because Christ is our all, and in all, he is our life. Not just the most important thing in life, but he is our life. For to know him is to have life. We pray that you would take the message, take the word that we've looked at today and bless it to our hearts. May it be a source of comfort, a source of strength to edify thy people. And at the same time, may it be a word of warning to those who are yet in their natural state that they need to consider where they are and the fact that they are now condemned and need to be found in Christ. Bless those, we pray, that are sick. Be with Pastor and his wife, Lynn. Touch their infirmities, raise them up. 
For others that are sick, we lift them up to you as well and pray that you'd be with us now as we part to go our separate ways and that you would bless us by your grace and in your mercy. For Christ's sake, amen. Let's sing our song. you and keep you. You're dismissed.